Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On May 17, 1973, the Senate caucus room was filled to capacity for the first public hearing of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaigns. Senate staffers, journalists, and photographers filled the 300-seat room. The committee of seven senators and seven lawyers were charged with the formidable task of investigating the 1972 presidential election for signs of wrongdoing. This included the break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters in the Watergate office complex, a scandal so notorious that it had simply become known as Watergate. Households across America tuned in to watch the testimony live, aired start to finish by the Public Broadcasting Service. At the beginning of the Senate committee hearings, 19% of Americans thought Richard Nixon should be removed from office. By the end, the number would increase to 57%. 77-year-old Democratic Senator Sam Irvin put on his reading glasses and opened the proceedings with a statement. In an even tone, he told the packed room that the hearings were beginning in an atmosphere of the utmost gravity. And that weight was felt by the many onlookers. The large hall was nearly silent as the first witness took his seat. The Senate caucus room had hosted other historical investigations, like the Teapot Dome scandal and the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was a fitting backdrop for a hearing that would help end a presidency. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram 
at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we examined the investigation of the 1972 Watergate break-in and the subsequent trial of the men caught in the act. However, the case wasn't closed after those proceedings. Defendant James McCord revealed that there were more people involved in the break-in than those put on trial. This week, we'll explore the subsequent investigation, which tried to answer the famous question, what did the president know? And when did he know it? And finally, we'll look at the outcome that sealed Richard Nixon's legacy as possibly the most complicated U.S. president in American history. Senator Sam Irvin, a 77-year-old Democrat, was known for his North Carolina drawl and his country lawyer manners. But he was also a Harvard Law School graduate who could easily quote Shakespeare. He was known as the only man in the Senate who had the respect of everyone on both sides of the aisle. Irvin opened the public hearings on May 17, 1973, by telling the crowded room and the television cameras that the men who broke into Watergate hadn't just stolen from the Democratic National Committee. They had stolen from every American. They had robbed them of their right to vote in a free election. Irvin stated that the role of the select committee was not to entertain unfounded rumors, but to remove a black cloud of distrust that had fallen on society. They would look at the issues at hand and determine if policy changes were needed to ensure that nothing like this ever happened again. Irvin then reminded the room that the nation and history were watching. They could not fail in their mission. Among the first witnesses of the hearing was 49-year-old James W. McCord, Jr., one of the five men caught burglarizing the Watergate building. McCord's testimony was one of the most anticipated of the Watergate proceedings, though what he had to say was far from a surprise. The Senate had met with almost all of the witnesses before the public hearings, and portions of McCord's statement had already been leaked to the media. McCord testified that after he and the other robbers were arrested, he started receiving money. The funds came to him through an intermediary who told him it was from the Committee to Re-Elect the President, also known as CRP. Though McCord didn't explicitly know the purpose of the cash, it didn't take much to guess. It was hush money. 48-year-old Samuel Dash chief counsel for the Senate Select Committee, asked him to clarify, had anyone pressured him to plead guilty at his original trial in exchange for bribes or anything else? McCord said, yes. One of the men who organized the break-in, Howard Hunt, contacted him in October of 1972. Hunt promised that all of the arrested robbers would be given presidential clemency if they pleaded guilty. They would have to serve time in prison, but Nixon would ultimately commute their sentences. Hunt also assured McCord that their families would be supported while they were locked up, and they would be given jobs after they were released. But McCord turned the offer down. 
Then, as the January trial neared, McCord was approached by the assistant director of criminal enforcement at the ATF, Jack Caulfield. Caulfield repeated the offer of clemency and insisted that everyone else was going to cooperate. McCord was the lone holdout. All he needed to do was plead guilty, stay quiet, and he'd be back to his family within a year. When McCord turned down the offer again, Caulfield turned the screw. He threatened that the administration would have to take steps to defend itself, but nevertheless, McCord refused to bend. He would not plead guilty. This was because he'd seen a certain name on the prosecution's witness list for the impending trial, Jeb Magruder. As the deputy director for Nixon's campaign, McCord was certain that Magruder was going to lie on the stand. He would testify that the campaign knew nothing about the break-in. And it seemed to McCord that he and the others were being asked to take the fall, while the other, higher powers, got away scot-free. McCord's next line of questions came from Fred Thompson, minority counsel for the Select Committee. He turned the topic toward the masterminds of the Watergate break-in, G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt. Thompson asked if McCord knew about any meetings between these men and aides to the president. McCord replied that Hunt mentioned meetings with Attorney General John Mitchell, White House Counsel John Dean, and Deputy Director Jeb Magruder. Thompson then asked if Hunt or Liddy had ever told him that they specifically discussed the Watergate break-in at these meetings. McCord answered, oh yes, very definitely. On Tuesday, May 22, 1973, McCord concluded his testimony. Senate Democrats were pleased he'd linked Watergate back to the White House, but the Republicans remained skeptical. They considered his testimony hearsay at best, and they needed direct testimony to justify indictments. That's exactly what they got with their next witness, Jack Caulfield. Caulfield was the man who McCord had just accused of offering him hush money. Clutching his prepared statement tightly, Caulfield confirmed almost everything that McCord had stated. He admitted that, on the orders of White House counsel John Dean, Caulfield told McCord to plead guilty in exchange for clemency. Caulfield claimed he didn't know what the president knew about the offer, but Dean told him that the order came from the top. As the committee proceedings continued, U.S. Attorney General Elliot Lee Richardson was tasked with appointing a special prosecutor to head the Department of Justice's own Watergate investigation. After compiling a list of candidates, Richardson started making calls, but every person he reached out to had the same answer, no. Some cited that it was because they didn't want to leave their current position, but others had concerns about White House interference in the investigation. No matter how many promises Richardson made to the contrary, the situation was fraught. Eventually, Richardson called on 61-year-old Harvard law professor Archibald Cox. Unlike the other candidates, Cox had no qualms involving himself in an administrative scandal. He told the media that Richardson assured him that the White House would not interfere with his investigation. He then stated, 
whatever else I shall be, I shall be independent. And Cox made good on his promise. Soon he hired a group of young, eager, and independent lawyers to help him investigate. And as Cox built his team, the Senate Select Committee continued their own proceedings. On June 6, 1973, Hugh W. Sloan Jr., the former treasurer of the committee to re-elect the president, testified before the Senate Select Committee. Majority Counsel Samuel Dash asked him what had happened in the early morning hours after the Watergate break-in the previous summer. Sloan was in his office at the White House around 9.30 a.m. when G. Gordon Liddy rushed down the hall. Frantic, Liddy told him that his boys got caught last night and he was afraid he was going to lose his job. Sloan claimed the statement made no sense to him, but he was used to people at the campaign fretting about being fired, so he just brushed it off. But then, a month later, Sloan met with Nixon's deputy campaign director, Jeb Magruder, for a drink. Magruder pressured Sloan to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and downplay the amount of money the CRP had paid G. Gordon Liddy. He asked Sloan to voluntarily report to the U.S. attorney that the CRP had paid Liddy only forty dollars or $45,000, less than a quarter of the $200,000 they had actually given him. Magruder hoped that doing this would give the appearance that the campaign was cooperating with the investigation. Sloan was shocked he was being asked to lie to federal investigators, but he told Magruder he would sleep on it and give him an answer in the morning. The next day, Sloan told Magruder he would go to the prosecutor's office and answer yes if asked directly if he paid Liddy $45,000. But if he was asked if Liddy received more, Sloan told Magruder that he would tell the investigators the truth. Realizing Sloan wasn't going to play ball, Magruder dropped the suggestion entirely. But a few weeks later, Sloan realized that the CRP was completely committed to the cover-up, even if it meant perjuring themselves in court. And he knew that if he stayed with the committee, he would eventually be faced with that same ultimatum. It went against Sloan's deep-rooted integrity. He quit his job and offered to cooperate with the prosecution. Senator Sam Irvin looked down from the Senate dais and drawled, Your testimony has renewed my faith in the old expression, An honest man is the noblest work of God. The witnesses before the committee painted a picture of a bungled burglary and a sloppy cover-up. But so far, no one had provided first-hand knowledge that the conspiracy went past the committee to re-elect the president. All they had was hearsay. Not one of them had successfully linked the Watergate break-in to the Oval Office. And that was by design. The Senate Select Committee had done a large-scale investigation prior to the public hearings and carefully stacked their testimonies to lead them closer and closer to the White House. Their next witness was the first link in that chain. After months of subterfuge, Deputy Campaign Director Jeb Magruder was ready to tell all he knew. 
all eyes were on the boyish Magruder on June 14, 1973, as he was sworn in. He promised before the U.S. Senate, America and God, to tell nothing but the truth. Chief Majority Counsel Samuel Dash asked Magruder to describe a series of meetings he had with G. Gordon Liddy in the weeks leading up to the break-in. Magruder replied carefully, deliberately. He told the committee that on January 27, 1972, he met with Liddy, White House Counsel John Dean, and Attorney General John N. Mitchell. There, Liddy presented a plan he dubbed Operation Gemstone. Using color-coded charts, Liddy laid out a strategy to destabilize the Democratic candidates while protecting Republicans from security threats and bad press. Among these projects was a plan to kidnap leaders of radical leftist groups expected to protest the Republican National Convention. Liddy planned to sequester them in Mexico during the event, allowing them to return home after. Laughter from onlookers cut through the silence of the Senate caucus room. Liddy's plan sounded even more ridiculous when spelled out in such formal proceedings. Even the nervous Magruder cracked a smile. Though some found Libby's scheme laughable, Magruder said he, Mitchell, and Dean were stunned at the scale of the illegal activities he was proposing. They told Liddy they refused to go through with his absurd plan, so Liddy was forced back to the drawing board. After a series of meetings, Attorney General Mitchell eventually approved a surveillance plan, including bugging the DNC headquarters. Magruder's admission about these meetings linked one of Nixon's closest advisors, White House attorney John Dean, to Watergate. And now, John Dean was ready to take the committee another step closer to the Oval Office. He was going to connect the conspiracy to the president himself. Coming up, Dean walks the committee through the Watergate cover-up. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. 
The Senate Select Committee investigating the Watergate scandal was determined to uncover how high up the chain the cover-up went. They had heard several testimonies that inched them closer and closer to the truth. But the next witness, former White House counsel John Dean, would lead them straight to the Oval Office. On Monday, June 25, 1973, Dean sat down at the table facing the committee alone. This was a marked change from the previous witnesses, who had their attorneys next to them. Dean was sending a message. He was going to tell the whole truth, regardless of the consequences. Dean told the committee that he didn't believe Nixon fully understood Watergate or the cover-up. Before he went any further, he wanted it on the record that he believed Nixon should be forgiven for whatever role he may have played. But rather than taking questions from senators, Dean announced that he was going to read a 245-page prepared statement outlining the Watergate break-in. The document started with those early meetings with G. Gordon Liddy and continued to the day that Dean was forced to resign as White House counsel. In Dean's statement, which took an entire day to read, he admitted he was present for the initial meetings Jeb Magruder described, but at the time, Dean told Liddy he wanted nothing to do with his outlandish gemstone scheme, and if the campaign went through with it, he didn't want to know. So when the plan to break into the Watergate building was discussed, Dean simply wasn't there. He heard nothing about the matter until the break-in actually happened. Dean testified that immediately after the burglars were arrested, he began his own investigation, asking members of the CRP what they knew. He wanted a full picture of what happened so he could best advise the president as his legal counsel. But when he realized some of the people involved linked back to the president's campaign and former Attorney General John Mitchell, Dean tried to stall the investigation. He needed it to stop before it went any higher than Gordon Liddy. And he succeeded. In fact, Dean was so successful at stymieing the investigation that Nixon congratulated him on his efforts. Dean then testified that in late February of 1973, Nixon told him to report directly to him on everything related to Watergate. Throughout March, Dean had nearly daily contact with the president. However, Dean grew concerned. The president was too close to the cover-up. Dean didn't think Nixon fully understood Watergate or the ramifications of his involvement. On March 21, 1973, he sat down with Nixon and told him the cover-up was a cancer growing on his presidency. If that cancer were not removed, it would be fatal. Dean suggested that instead of doubling down on the cover-up, those involved should take responsibility, including himself. Doing so would allow Nixon plausible deniability. But Nixon didn't seem concerned. Dean wondered if the president still didn't understand the scope of the scandal. He appealed to Nixon's closest advisors, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. But they, like the president, insisted that everyone stay the course. 
In that moment, Dean realized that he was the only one who thought they should come clean in order to protect Nixon. And if he were the only one to do so, those close to the president, particularly Haldeman and Ehrlichson, would benefit. Then it dawned on him. They were setting him up to be the scapegoat. Panicked at the thought of legal charges, Dean began cooperating with federal prosecutors, but he didn't do this behind Nixon's back. On April 15, 1973, Dean told Nixon that he was going to take full responsibility for his involvement. Dean testified that Nixon then began asking him very specific, leading questions, which were unlike his usual relaxed way of speaking. It then occurred to him that Nixon was recording the meeting, possibly setting up a record to protect himself. Then, right as they were wrapping up the conversation, Nixon stood up from his chair and walked to the far corner of his office. There, very quietly, he told Dean that he should never have discussed giving Howard Hunt clemency. It was the only incriminating thing the president said in the meeting. Dean felt it was no accident that Nixon made sure he was far from his desk when he said it. But Dean had no proof to offer the select committee of these meetings with the president other than his notes. And over a month later, on July 10, 1973, when John Mitchell appeared before the committee, Dean's initial testimony was further undermined. Campaign director Mitchell testified that the president did not know his aides were involved in a cover-up until March of 1973. Now it was simply Dean's word against Mitchell's. But Dean's suspicion that the president recorded one of their meetings was not missed by committee members. They needed to know if Nixon routinely recorded White House meetings. If they could get their hands on the tapes, they could corroborate Dean's accusations that the president knew about and, more importantly, condoned the cover-up. Senate investigators interviewed dozens of White House staffers, asking if they had heard or seen anything about recording devices planted within the Oval Office. But no one knew a thing. Then, on Friday, July 13th, they called in Alexander Butterfield, Nixon's deputy chief of staff. A loyal Republican, he decided he would not volunteer any information, but he would not lie if asked about the taping system. After over four hours of questions, suddenly the tapings came up. Butterfield was asked directly if he knew of any recording devices in the White House. Butterfield hesitated before saying, I was hoping you fellas wouldn't ask me that. He told them that in the summer of 1970, Nixon had a voice-activated recording system installed in the Oval Office. Outside of the Secret Service agents who installed the system, very few people knew about it. Though witnesses continued to testify before the Select Committee, from that point forward, the focus of the investigation shifted. The committee's new priority was to find out what was on those tapes. On July 23, 1973, both the Senate committee and special prosecutor Archibald Cox demanded that Nixon hand over any tapes recorded at the White House. 
two days later, he responded with a letter. Nixon claimed that he would not be turning over any documents or recordings because they fell under executive privilege, a right held by the president to keep confidential communications private. Nixon pointed out in his letter all the ways he had aided the investigation. He told all of his staff to testify honestly, and he even waived attorney-client privilege so that counsel John Dean could speak openly to the committee. But he would not make private presidential communications public. However, his unwillingness to cooperate made the public wonder, what did President Nixon have to hide? On August 15, 1973, this public scrutiny led Nixon to give his second televised address on the Watergate affair. In spite of Dean's testimony claiming Nixon was aware of the cover-up in September of 1972, Nixon reiterated that he knew nothing about the break-in until March 21, 1973. On the topic of the tapes, Nixon stated it was essential to maintain confidentiality between the president and his advisors. If the recordings were released, the world would never trust that discussions with the president would remain private. Nixon assured the American people that he was not hiding anything about Watergate. He was simply protecting the function of his office. But the Senate Watergate Committee wouldn't be brushed off so easily. They responded to Nixon's refusal by issuing a formal subpoena for the tapes. And when Nixon ignored the order, they pursued legal action. The executive and legislative branches were now in battle, and they were asking the judicial branch to step in to mediate. Senator Howard Baker, a Republican from Tennessee, called it a historic conflict. Judge John Sirica, who oversaw the Watergate grand jury, ultimately sided with the committee. He ordered that Nixon turn over the tapes for private review. But still, Nixon refused. He would not comply until there was a final order from the Supreme Court. And he was sure that day would never come. However, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld Judge Sirica's ruling that Nixon must hand over the tapes relevant to the Watergate scandal. Worried the Supreme Court may not side with him, Nixon tried to compromise. He would release the recordings, but only to Democratic Senator John Stennis. Nixon proposed that the 72-year-old, well-respected Stennis listen to the tapes and summarize them for the special prosecutor's office. Nixon emphasized that these would be summaries, not transcripts. He trusted Stennis to be sensitive to matters of national security. Senator Irvin was open to the offer, but Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox refused to accept the compromise. He wanted to hear the tapes himself. He wasn't going to rely on the hard-of-hearing Stennis to accurately convey what was said and the tone used. Cox continued to press for full access to the recordings. On the evening of Friday, October 19, 1973, Nixon ordered Cox to back off and withdraw his subpoena. 
but Cox refused. Nixon had had enough. The next day, with his back against the wall, he ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Special Prosecutor Cox. But Richardson had promised both Cox and Congress that he would not intervene with the special prosecutor's work. He wasn't about to go back on his word. Instead, Richardson resigned as attorney general. After accepting Richardson's resignation, Nixon turned to the next in line, Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus. But he, too, refused. Ruckelshaus also chose to resign rather than carry out the order. Nixon then went to Solicitor General Robert Bork. He carried out the order and fired Cox. Bork planned to resign immediately afterward, but Richardson convinced him to stay. They couldn't leave the Justice Department without any leadership. After Cox's departure, Nixon dispatched the FBI to the special prosecutor's offices, where he ordered they guard all the materials the investigation had seized. Anyone remaining in the office working on the Watergate investigation was told to take their personal belongings and leave. From that point forward, FBI agents were charged with ensuring no Watergate evidence left the building. The events of that evening were dubbed the Saturday Night Massacre, and the public backlash was immediate and immense. Nixon had previously been accused of meddling in the Watergate investigation, but now the American people were seeing his interference play out live on their televisions. Suddenly, what once seemed like hearsay were now credible allegations. A new word started circling the investigation. Impeachment. Coming up, Nixon deals with the fallout of the Saturday Night Massacre. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1973, U.S. President Richard Nixon adamantly refused to turn over recordings from the Oval Office. He even went so far as to force the resignations of the top two members of the Justice Department. After firing Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, Nixon felt the weight of the public backlash. On October 23, 1973, while under immense pressure, he finally agreed to release some of the Oval Office tapes. And when Acting Attorney General Robert Bork appointed a new special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, Nixon didn't intervene. No matter what barriers Nixon put in their way, it was clear now that the investigation was going to continue as planned. On Saturday, November 17, 1973, Nixon spoke at the Associated Press Managing Editors Convention and addressed the Watergate affair. I have never obstructed justice. 
And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Nixon insisted that the White House tapes would prove he wasn't a crook and that he did not know about the Watergate break-in before it happened. He also claimed he never offered executive clemency for any of the burglars. He emphasized that he didn't learn until March 21, 1973, that a cover-up was underway. Four days after Nixon's address, it was announced that one of the White House tapes had an 18-and-a-half-minute gap. This gap occurred during a conversation between Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman and President Nixon three days after the June 1972 break-in. Nixon claimed he didn't know what was talked about during these missing minutes, but it was clear that it occurred right as the conversation turned to Watergate. Rosemary Woods, the president's secretary, took the blame for the missing audio. She said she was transcribing the tape when she answered a phone call. She thought she hit the stop button on the tape recorder, but instead must have pushed record. When she answered the phone, she had kept her foot on the pedal that controlled the playback. This action allowed the tape to be recorded over. However, because she believed the phone call was only five minutes long, Rosemary couldn't account for the additional 13 and a half minutes of missing content. And when investigators asked Rosemary Woods to reenact the accidental erasure, she physically couldn't. Every time Woods reached to answer the phone, her foot lifted from the pedal and the machine stopped. The evidence of wrongdoing on the part of the president was building, and the public's calls for impeachment grew. In response, the House of Representatives authorized the House Judiciary Committee to begin their own investigation in February of 1974. While the Senate Select Committee looked at policy changes and the Justice Department looked at criminal charges, the 38-member House committee was tasked with investigating potential impeachment. They would spend the next several months determining if there were any grounds to bring charges against the president. If they did, it would only be the second time in U.S. history that a president was impeached. Meanwhile, Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski obtained seven new indictments from the Watergate Grand Jury on March 1, 1974. Among those charged were campaign director John Mitchell, chief of staff Bob Haldeman, and aide John Ehrlichman. Richard Nixon wasn't indicted, though the grand jury named him a co-conspirator. With a trial looming, Leon Jaworski needed those White House tapes. If they contained the conversations John Dean claimed, they had the evidence necessary to convict. Frustrated that the president was not cooperating, Jaworski issued a fresh subpoena for 64 more tapes in April of 1974. Nixon's first instinct was to continue refusing to comply, but his advisors urged him to fall in line. As it was, he'd already been suspected of obstructing justice. 
if it appeared that he was stonewalling, the president would risk losing the support in Congress he was relying on to avoid impeachment. So, on April 29, 1974, Nixon agreed to a compromise. He would release edited transcripts of 43 conversations. The resulting transcript was more than 12,000 pages, and it revealed what Nixon claimed all along. He didn't know about the Watergate cover-up until March 1973, and he had no part in it. But these transcripts weren't good enough for Jaworski, so he continued to pursue the subpoena in court. The House Judiciary Committee also rejected the transcripts and issued their own subpoena in May. In response, Nixon, once again, refused to turn over the actual tapes. Instead, he released 19 audio clips. But as the committee members listened, what they heard didn't line up with the typed transcripts. In some cases, whole passages were omitted from the transcript. In other cases, key words had been changed. For example, in one recording, Nixon discussed lying under oath with his aides. The typed transcript read, but you can say, I can't recall. This is a simple suggestion, not a demand. However, in the corresponding tape, Nixon said, just be damned sure you say, I don't remember, I can't recall. This was an order, an order to commit perjury from the president. As the tapes and transcripts were slowly released, they all corroborated John Dean's testimony. It was no longer his word against President Nixon's. And if this much was accurate, was the rest of what Dean said also true? It wouldn't be long before the American public found out. On May 31, 1974, Judge Sirica ordered Nixon to comply with the subpoena. Nixon appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. On July 8, 1974, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments. Nixon's attorney reiterated Nixon's claim of executive privilege. Furthermore, he claimed Jaworski hadn't proven that he actually needed the information he was seeking. He could convict the indicted conspirators without it. Just over two weeks later, on July 24th, the court made its ruling. In a vote of 8 to 0, the justices upheld the subpoena. Nixon had no choice but to turn over the tapes. A week later, the Judiciary Committee voted on articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. They charged him with obstruction of the investigation of the Watergate break-in, misuse of power, violation of his oath of office, and failure to comply with the House subpoenas. Eleven Republicans sitting on the committee voted against the articles of impeachment. But that wasn't enough to stop them. The articles were then sent to the full House of Representatives. If the House voted to accept them, the Senate would then hold a trial. That trial would determine whether or not Richard Nixon stayed in office. It was the moment America was waiting for. But things wouldn't make it that far. 
On August 5th, Nixon released more of the secret White House tapes in compliance with the Supreme Court ruling. This included three conversations he had with his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, in the first week after the break-in. One conversation occurred on June 23, 1972, in the Oval Office. It started with Haldeman briefing the president on the FBI's investigation. Haldeman told the president that the FBI investigation was not under control, and FBI Director Patrick Gray didn't know how he could rein things in. Haldeman warned that the agents had followed the trail to some productive areas that would be damaging to the White House. He said campaign director John Mitchell and legal counsel John Dean both agreed the only way forward was to stop the investigation. After more discussion, Nixon instructed Haldeman to tell the director of the CIA that the Watergate affair was going to open up the Bay of Pigs controversy again. He ordered that the CIA tell the FBI to call off the investigation. This conversation has become known as the smoking gun tape. The recording proved the president knew about and participated in the cover-up within a week of the break-in. He had lied to the public when he repeatedly claimed he didn't learn about it until nine months later. There was now no chance of avoiding impeachment. With the release of the smoking gun tape, Nixon would inevitably be ousted from the office. Richard Nixon had fought for over two years to cover up the Watergate break-in and his knowledge of it. He resisted subpoenas and fervently denied the accusations leveled against him by his former advisors. But it was all undone by his own taping system. On August 8, 1973, at 2.20 in the afternoon, Press Secretary Ronald Ziegler entered the press room to read a statement. The place was packed with waiting reporters who hung on his every word. Ziegler's voice shook as he announced that at 9 o'clock that night, Nixon would address the nation from the Oval Office. Though Ziegler immediately left the room without taking questions, the tremor in his voice gave away the purpose of Nixon's address. The president was going to resign. As promised, Nixon addressed the American people on television and radio at 9 p.m. that evening. He told the nation that America needed a full-time president, not one who was embroiled in seeking personal vindication in Congress. And then he made his announcement. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Though the announcement wasn't a surprise, the country wondered what would come next. Over the next month, Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski weighed that question carefully. With Nixon out of office, could he be charged as a private citizen for crimes committed while he was president? There was no precedent for this, and one thing was sure, any case against Nixon would be tied up in court for years as the issue was debated. 
it seemed Watergate was far from over. But on September 8, 1974, newly appointed President Gerald Ford decided to put an end to it. In a live address, Ford announced to a surprised country that he was issuing a complete pardon to Richard Nixon for any offense he may have committed during his time as president. Ford insisted he did it not out of consideration for Richard Nixon, though he felt he and his family paid a high price already. He did it so the nation could move forward. Richard Nixon accepted the pardon. A total of 48 people were convicted for crimes related to the Watergate break-in and the subsequent cover-up. This included Nixon's aides and advisors, John Mitchell, Jeb Magruder, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and John Dean. They all served time in prison for their crimes. Richard Nixon, however, spent his time after his presidency rehabilitating his legacy. When he died nearly 20 years later, on April 22, 1994, he was regarded as a respected elder statesman, though he was never able to completely shake the tarnish of the Watergate affair. While the scandal shook the public's trust in the office of the president, it also sent a clear message to the White House. No one, not even the leader of the nation, is above the law. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Carly Madden. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.